Hey everyone, it's Tim here again, and you're listening to episode 16 of the Black Swan Podcast. If it's your first time listening, thanks for tuning in, and feel free to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It's actually been a minute since our last episode. Like many small businesses around the world, we've been navigating a return to manufacturing after restrictions began to get lifted uh, in our state here in Michigan. And uh, we've also been processing the social unrest and demand for reform around the country the last several weeks. Uh, So please stay tuned as we begin having conversations with our artists and friends, beginning to try to unpack some responsibility as a company and individuals uh, continuing to support equity in our little orchestral percussion community. In the meantime, uh, we're super excited to be back manufacturing, shipping, and promoting Black Swamp products. Uh, So, this conversation with Corey Hills was actually recorded several months ago after Corey returned from an event in New Zealand with the Los Angeles Percussion Quartet. If you follow Corey online, hopefully you caught one or more of his weekly live percussive storytelling performances in April, May, and a little bit of June. If not, you can always visit Corey's website and YouTube channel to catch up on his content. I'll uh, throw some links in our show notes you can check out. Uh, Corey has a really unique and diverse career, and we take time to dig into the development of his percussive storytelling project, his collaboration uh, with the Los Angeles Percussion Quartet, and many tidbits in between. So here we go. So you're you're comfortable being recorded then? Yeah. For <laughs> I just hit record too. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, we're rolling. If we're both recording, we're good to go. Hey, Corey. I am rolling. Hi. How you doing? Uh, I'm good. Uh, I appreciate you calling in and um, having a chat with us for the Black Swan podcast. Um, really just, I'm having a good time talking to a lot of our artists and educators and getting their backstory, like, you know, how they got started um, in the music industry, kind of what, what their education was, what they've been doing. Um, so I'm like excited to talk to you because I think you have a really unique and interesting story um and uh, i've heard that a lot about me and and i think that <laughs> <laughs> I, my parents say that too you know oh, like, well, he's a very not, unique individual well that's not a negative huh. thing that's totally that's totally <laughs> cool like um i mean i mean we'll get into all this stuff but obviously like the solo things you do with the percussive storytelling and then um you know, obviously your work with the Los Angeles Percussion Quartet, and I know you studied um, outside the U.S., so we'll talk about some of that stuff. Which, right. by the way, you guys just got back from New Zealand somewhat recently. Is yes. that correct? Yeah, September we had about a three-week, two-and-a-half, two three-week tour um, through Christchurch, Wellington, and Auckland, three of the big cities there. Right. Um we did our rep, and then we also premiered a concerto for percussion quartet and orchestra in Christchurch. What was that piece? It's called Jire. It was by a New Zealand composer named James Gardner, and oh. it was really interesting because he decided not to use any pitched percussion for us. And wow. so there were a ton of found objects, uh, everything from regular drums, cymbals, on blocking but then i had a pile of plastic toys and debris found in the ocean right. so the piece was about 
this uh, this trash island in the Pacific Ocean called yeah. Gyre, which is the name of the piece. And so I got to improvise on all kinds of weird things, including a pink dolphin that made the newspaper review because I squeaked this dolphin <laughs> at one point. And I'm supposed yeah. to squeak the dolphin with the with the gusto of Greta Thunberg, you know, the environmental activist. Yeah, for sure. The teenage girl. Yeah, so yep. she's referenced, and so I'm supposed to, like, channel her passion when I squeak the dolphin. Yeah. Um, there is a lot of passion there. And uh, so did that, you literally had to go t- to the beach and find yes. find your own instruments, I guess? The, yes, indeed. I uh, found some, and then the the only unfortunate roadblock that I ran into there was that they actually have clean beaches. Right. So it was a, uh, it was disappointing, but also kind of cool that they didn't have trash. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. on one hand I needed it, but on the other I'm like, wow, you guys do a really good job keeping your beaches clean. Right. I guess you could have like, uh, for a couple of days, just been really messy on the beach, or like planted this, some deliberate right. items that you wanted to use and then go up after the fact you know and pick them up and use them but it defeats the this purpose, is I true guess. well I, I must say the pink dolphin did come from the dollar it, store so oh, okay you know. <laughs> was it near we the did, beach we did it was yeah every, and everything's near the beach there yeah, so that's sure. <laughs> kind of works itself out <laughs> okay well we got way ahead of ourselves there for a second uh <laughs> so let's let's go back in time like where where are you from? Like, where'd you grow up? I'm from Northern Virginia, outside oh. D.C. And, and yeah. kind of a typical musician start. I mean, this is something I I ask a lot of the people I interview. Like, you got started in middle school, or how did your interest in percussion That's, develop? Yeah, I started piano, I think, in second or third grade. Yeah, uh, I just asked my parents if I could if I could play. And then in middle school, I wanted to play an instrument. And so I randomly picked up drums. I'm not even sure right. how. Part, partly is I had asthma, and so I didn't want to play an instrument. I had to blow sure. because, although that's it's a misnomer, but at the time, <laughs> I didn't want to. And drums just seemed, I don't know, and, and mallets, drums, but all of percussion. I, I wasn't like, wanting to be a rock drummer. I, mm-hmm. I just wanted to play percussion. And so I think I started when I was 13 or so, 13, sure. 14. And, and then boom, came drumline, and there she goes. <laughs> it, was, it was all downhill or uh, maybe uphill from there. Like, so you I think were... it goes uphill for a bit, and yeah. then it goes downhill, but then there's a bridge you can take if you don't want to go downhill. <laughs> right. I took, you... I took the bridge. So what bridge was that? Oh, just, just the, into the other world of percussion. Right, I can the, stay in the in that land. Sure. Which can be fun, but I, no, a drumline was cool, and it certainly opened up a lot of doors of of possibility. Yeah. And that's essentially what happened: is I used that to get to the next place, to the next place, to the next place, just and to learn about the the wider world of music and how percussion can be applied. And that was sort of my take on things when I went to college. Yeah, in college, to start with, was uh, Northwestern, uh, I think. Is that Northwestern correct? with Michael Burrett. I think yeah. people may have heard of him. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's possible. Back, back when he was at Northwestern. So, uh, 
yeah so how did you end up there from virginia well i didn't really know much about places uh, my family doesn't have any musical connections and my mm-hmm. teachers were very um they, they were not pushy they didn't have an agenda of what school to that i should apply to uh, it came down to eastman with john beck at the time and northwestern with with Burrett. And I found out about Northwestern because I had a, a set of mallets that had his name on it. Um, <laughs> the marketing worked. The marketing worked. As I, I asked my teacher one day, who's this guy? Yeah. I'm like, oh, Michael Bird. He teaches there. Okay, I'll check it out. And yeah. I just, I clicked with him and his, first of all, his energy. I don't know if uh, I'm sure almost anyone who would be listening to this would know of his legendary energy. Sure. And absolute dedication to percussion overall i had thought he was a marimbist and i think that's a big misconception when it comes to him he is uh, an incredible overall percussionist sure i think marimba is how he maybe made his name um but the whole yeah. focus there was on percussion ensemble that was the focus and that was awesome yeah um so that was your your undergrad did you spend a lot of time in Chicago then? Like, um, I mean, you lived there for whatever, four years or more. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yep. Um, and from there, I mean, you kind of, obviously you already know you want to, or I, I assume, you know, you want to have a career in the, the music industry was as a performer and percussionist. I mean, that's, that's where you were kind of honing some of those not- thoughts and ideas or no. Sort sort of. I have a I had a double degree in music ed, music performance, and okay. I didn't actually want to be a performer. I was more interested in education, and this will come full circle later. But yep, partly I, can, I see it I coming. Wanted, I can feel it. <laughs> you you can you can see it. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. it's there. Right. Um, but what I wanted to do above anything else was I wanted to study abroad. Sure. That was a. Um, a dream of mine since I was a little kid. I wanted to see more of the world. And performance was my ticket to do that. And I had gotten into my late junior, senior year of undergrad. And that's when you're, you're, you know, you're more able to explore things on your own yeah. and develop these interests. And then you go to a graduate school to sort of hone your specific interests. And I, I got really into theatrical percussion, percussion with voice, or movement, or I, you know, other disciplinary uh, artistic disciplines. Right. And um, one day I was in Chicago. This was right. I, I didn't. I hadn't applied anywhere, and so the year was coming to an end, and I had no plans. I had a couple thoughts about going overseas, but then um, Professor Burrett called, and he he's like, "Hey, Corey." I'm at a Chicago Bulls game, and, and this is a true story. He, he was at a Bulls game, and I don't know why he's calling me from a Bulls game. Right. He's like, Anders wants to talk to you, and it was uh, Anders Ostrand. I don't know if you guys know Anders, uh, oh, a yeah. brilliant S- Swedish percussionist, uh, vibraphonist, yep. and and so he passes him the phone, and then <laughs> Anders comes on. And Anders and Bert are, are very good friends, so I had known Anders as a guest artist for many years, and yeah. he said, Corey, you need to go to Australia and study with Vanessa Tomlinson. I'm like, oh, what? great. What? 
he had just judged a competition with her in, uh, I think it was Geneva, and she performed and judged, and he saw the connection and told Britt and then told me, and so I emailed her, and it was pretty crazy because I had to send a VHS tape and get it switched to the correct Australia format. Yeah, that's how old well, I am, folks. Yeah, right. Yeah, for you listeners at home, uh, yeah, VHS. Ain't pre- no <laughs> YouTube. I had to, I had to go to uh, this part of Chicago where they, the shops, it was called Devon Street, which is like all the ethnic restaurants and shops, and this guy would convert your VHS to whatever region wow and the next thing i know I, i'm in australia yeah yeah I was, my masters i was gonna ask if you did if you studied with vanessa um i mean i've just had an opportunity to meet her once at PASIC, and she was super cool i had a chance to have you know a conversation with her and we've kept in touch a little bit but yeah i was curious if yeah. that's who you you studied with and Australia then she is absolutely phenomenal she studied with Steve Schick so she's from that uh, UCSD percussion contingent like uh, Morris Palter Terry Longshore Ayun Wang I think some of them are are black swamp artists if I'm not mistaken yeah Um, Morris um, and what I say about my time in Australia and my time at Northwestern is that like Professor Burritt taught me to be a percussionist and Vanessa taught me how to be an artist And I walked away from there understanding better about percussion as an artistic medium. And that was very cool. Yeah. Um, I mean, it totally makes sense kind of backtracking to what you were saying before is like you're kind of honing your skills in a, in a master's program. And I did, I went to the university of Akron for master's work and it was, really the same thing i mean in undergrad you know you're learning you're learning how to play you know how to hold the sticks hopefully you know how to hold the sticks by the time you get to college but uh um you know learning more fundamentals and basics and playing in ensembles and you get to your master's program and that's yeah you're learning how to express yourself um you know dr snyder there worked a lot with me on on yeah totally performance how to be an artist how to kind of put together a program or uh, you know, assemble yeah, pieces. Bring things and, to that next level and, oh, yeah. and really get your get your voice out, which right. is a is something I talk to young students about all the time. Sure. How to find your voice. Um, and so it, I left Australia, and then I actually lived in Italy for a year. I had a research fellowship to a oh. contemporary arts think tank. Yeah. Whatever the heck that means, <laughs> it was crazy. There were 40 of us under the age of 24 from, I think it was 35 different countries. And it was run by United Colors of Benetton, the clothing corporation. Right. Who are famous for very controversial ad campaigns and sort of a, a global um, a global artistic view through their business. And so this, this think tank was at their headquarters and all we did was create all day long. And there are people there from all different artistic disciplines. It yeah. was incredibly crazy, especially as a 23-year-old, yeah. to be in Italy, to be funded, and to be with all these other young artists. You can imagine that uh, it, was a, it was a fun time. <laughs> you know, okay, so is this the time period that you didn't want to talk about then? Do, is this the way you need is... to gloss over a little bit? <laughs> 
Well, there is just one thing about my friend who's a, a graffiti artist and the sure. two of us being chased by the Italian police in Venice. That's that's the uh, end of the story. We well, didn't, well, sorry, we didn't get caught. That's the end of the story. Yeah, well, but there's yeah, a story we... before that. Uh, it was it was fun. It was it was uh, it was fun, but it also led to the creation of percussive storytelling directly. I mean, I think everything led to that creation, but there was that uh, tipping point, and sure. that happened when I was in Italy. Um, um, so before we like dive into that, I do want to go back and you were and you said in your undergrad the last couple of years you were getting interested in kind of that that type of performance art if that's the way you put it like more yeah just so interdisciplinary what, percussion with other things right especially so how did, especially voice how did that how did that transpire then even in undergrad was there something i absolutely have no clue <laughs> <laughs> just became an, an an interest. I yeah, I'm guessing I saw someone else perform yeah something at a recital and I liked it. Yeah. I, I really, I really don't know. Um, yeah, I can't speak to any specific piece or moment. I mean, the first piece I did was "To the Earth" by Frederick Jevsky, the the clay pots piece. All right. Um, that was the first one with voice that I ever did but there was stuff before that that led me to to really like uh those pieces and yeah. and i i know later i know why i like those pieces at the at the time i had no clue at all so what is it that you you found you liked about them uh for me it's the uh engagement audience engagement so sure. i i find that interdisciplinary projects or performances that utilize all these different artistic angles have a better chance of resonating with audience members. Sure. Um, and of course, that there are other things that go into it, but that's that's something that um, that I like about interdisciplinary arts. Um, you just have a you just have so much more possibility, and and you're not stuck in playing only x or only y right. it's kind of a limitless area sure yeah no that's a good point sort of you know not only the creativity and the possibility but also in engaging the audience or um yep. making it a little more yep. um accessible i guess that's a, yep that's a way to put and it. that's exactly the perfect segue to percussive storytelling hi my name is Corey. in Italy doing this art it was definitely a brand of art called art for art's sake and that's where you do the art and you simply expect because it's high art that people get it or should appreciate it right. now we could easily have a debate about that and some people listening might really want to have a philosophical debate and, <laughs> and that's that's fine 
because I clearly stand on one side there. Yeah. But I, basically, when I, when that was happening, I grew disenchanted because I I was preparing all this time and all this energy for these performances that only a few people would show up for. Yeah. And and clear at the time I was I was pissed and I was thinking that it was the audience's fault and I later realized that it was completely my fault. I was not engaging correctly mm-hmm. or finding the right community to present my work. And so what I did one day is I wrote a story uh, while I was improvising on some Oh, this is really funny. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not making this up, but they were a couple of black swamp wood blocks. Oh yeah. <laughs> so there's a plug, but it's a it's a genuine plug. Uh, oh, thanks. Of uh, uh, some cowbells. No worries. You know, I gotta throw that in there. And it sounded like a bicycle. And so I sat down and I wrote a story called "The Lost Bicycle," and it's about a kid who loses his bike and then finds it. So it's, it's not exactly a complicated story. Right. But what I did is I set it to percussion music, and I, t- I told the story orally while I played the percussion music. And it I played it for a couple people there, and the response was overwhelming that that was just super cool. Mm-hmm. And so I recorded a little bit, and, you know, I, this was still before you know, any YouTube thing, but <laughs> right. I just, I just did it for myself and I kind of kept it in my back pocket and more or less forgot about it sure. until I came back to the States and I played it and talked to uh, someone who's been a big mentor for me over the years uh, is Matthew Duvall from eighth Blackbird. Oh, okay. Yep. Also black he, swamp guy. Yep. Um, I've known him. They were at Northwestern and they were in residence when I was there. Okay. And he, to this day, has been a, a huge influence and supporter. In fact, he and his wife funded the very first public performance of percussive storytelling at yeah. their daughter's school. Awesome. Um, way back to about ten, oh, 10 years ago. Um, and I had played a story for him, and then I had to put more stories together because I didn't have a program, but I got booked for a program, so I just had to compose and write more right and then it just things just sort of blew up when i was in kansas doing my doctoral studies i received a grant through a benefactor for a large sum of money to essentially offer the storytelling project to schools and libraries throughout the state of kansas for free yeah. he would pay me externally and that way it was part of a, a an outreach program he had created. He is yeah. a, a lawyer who uh, was also a benefactor of the arts. And in one summer, three months, I did about 120 performances. <laughs> Holy cow. Um, yeah, that's yeah. awesome. So and how did how did the, this benefactor well, even know this was a project you were working on? Like, how did you guys because get Because this is an awesome story. <laughs> I played a church gig. Hallelujah. The old-fashioned church gig. Yeah. So I, someone at um, the University of Kansas, where I was doing my doctoral work, had heard that I did. So at this time, I had done like maybe six to ten performances ever. Mm-hmm. You know, just very scattered things. But it was something I was I was really interested in, and I had a fellowship during my doctorate, so I basically just had free reign to 
do whatever. And I was trying to develop things a little more. And this person heard about me and this church she sang at, uh, she was a singer, had a family service and she thought one of my stories would be perfect. And I didn't want to go because I had to drive up to Chicago that day for a concert. And yeah. it's like a 10 hour drive. So, but, you know, being young and completely poor, you right. take church gigs because That's they, it. they pay. And yeah. I did that. And then I went to Chicago and I got an email later that day from this strange person. And it, it said, we need to talk. And it was signed this lawyer. Huh. And I'm thinking <laughs> some copyright uh-oh. infringement. What did I do? <laughs> so I ended up contacting him and he was at the church and had this program he was thinking about um, fa- starting or he had started it or developed, you know. Right. And he's, he called me up and he's like, uh, I'm going to fund you to to do this so go do it well there's definitely a lesson to be learned there kids all you <laughs> all you kids listening out there uh take the gigs yeah because you don't know who you're gonna meet and you don't know what's gonna come <laughs> come from it well Even... it's interesting about that is is uh what happened through that yeah it's true taking the gigs but if you sort of hear as you hear my biography you can tell that the that the the thread's already there, right? Sure. Oh, yeah. It's it's just a matter of maximizing the opportunity when it when it comes. One day, long, long ago, Mother Earth's only son was celebrating his sixth birthday. And Mother Earth wanted to give him the greatest gift in the entire land. After talking to Father Ocean, Brother Sky, and Sister Moon... Mother Earth created the first bicycle. The boy was overjoyed. This is the best gift ever. I will always, always keep it with me. And for the first month, he did just that. The boy rode the bicycle everywhere, in the green forest, down the steep mountain, and through the rushing river. But one day, a giant thunderstorm came down from the sky. The boy was forced to seek shelter, and he left his bike out in the rain next to the great tree. And uh, there's a a great book by this sort of... uh, Psych- he's a more of a social psychologist uh, writer named Malcolm Gladwell. Oh, yeah. And he's written a lot of books, one called Outliers, one called The Tipping Point. And The Tipping Point is what happened to me that summer. And when it's basically when you have so much stuff that your craft truly goes from point A to point Z. It, it and you have no choice but to do it. And right. there's a famous story about how the Beatles, when they started, were not a great band. They were okay. But they had a st- then they got a standing gig at this, I think it was in Germany, for like eight days a week to perform sets every right. day, eight days a week. And they <laughs> did that for over a year. Okay? 
What, eight days a week? And, yep. Oh. And after hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shows, how do you think they sounded? Pretty amazing. And yeah. that's basically what happened to me. And a lot of people who develop programs go through a sort of tipping point. And doing 120 performances in three months will certainly get you there. Yeah. Um, and then I, I look up and percussive storytelling is not just a small little hobby on the side it's more or less a, a bigger thing and yeah. now to date um i'm close to 550 performances in 10 countries to over 150,000 kids um and which is you know, obviously pretty cool uh, albums. I mean, the, you mentioned the first piece oh, yeah. you wrote Two. was called "The Lost Bicycle," yep. an album that came out, um, and I know has won like parenting awards and some other kind of creative type yep. awards. So, "Lost Bicycle" and then "Drum Factory" are my two albums. Right. They've won over a dozen creative arts awards, and I've also released two uh, books. Yeah, like children's. Music. Children's novels. Children's books. Yeah. One for younger kids, and then one for like uh, elementary school, middle grade readers. And I'm, I'm writing the third book right now. It's it's the second book in a series, and that comes out in June. Yeah. And I'll also be recording my third album as well. So <laughs> it's, it's a project that keeps growing. Cause and now I'm, I found myself in a very interesting position, and this is normally what happens after some sort of tipping point is you come up for air and you didn't really realize what happened. And then people look at you differently and they assume mm. you're, they treat you more like an expert in a certain area. Sure. And I've had the benefit over the last few years to take a step back and sort of analyze percussive storytelling from a, uh, artistic angle, also an educational angle. And that right. goes full circle back to me being a double major in music education <laughs> and performance. <laughs> Right. See, I told you it was coming back. Yeah, no, um, the, there's, I mean, that's not the first time I've had a conversation with somebody that there are those those circles, like either people that you meet or like in your case, sort of a discipline that you are interested in. And then it, there's this huge arc that turns into a circle and kind of comes back to what you were interested in. So, yep. uh, um, no, it's, it's all very cool. pretty cool. I have a, and, I do have a. It's, yeah, well, go ahead. Yeah, I do have a couple questions, and maybe you were getting this too. First question, so when you're back in Italy and the kind of seed of percussive storytelling has been planted and maybe growing a little bit, was it strictly a children's kind of outreach concept? Um, yes. Or, um, okay, well, that answered the question. Thanks. Uh, yep. Yeah, <laughs> it was. It was It was actually... Uh, Specifically, the mission statement was to bring classical music and storytelling to children in underserved communities. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did for a number of years. And then fortunately or unfortunately, it depends how you look at it, um, right. it became more of a for-profit. And then for a number of years, I was operating on this who-can-pay-me sort of <laughs> model, mm -hmm. which, I mean, come on, let's be honest, you have to... Well, it's your you career. Have to charge. Yeah. It's my career. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, in the last year and a half to two years, I've come back because I I hit 500 performances. I I, I look back and I and I 
I was thinking about, I hustled so hard to get to this point, but I got to this point. So what do I really want to do with the program? Mm -hmm. And the simple answer is to go back to the root mission statement, which is to bring this to children in underserved communities. And I've partnered with a number of organizations this year that, uh, are nonprofits that have all of that infrastructure in place. Mm -hmm. And I come in as a external consultant liaison, whatever, and get to go to these schools and communities that are really struggling. Um, in Los Angeles, uh, this next year, I might be going to a few dozen places and in the spring of this or winter spring of 2020, I'm an artist in residence in Colorado through a grant through the the NEA, National Endowment for the Arts, to go into a struggling town, um, or a failing town is what they call it. That's where the the town is literally failing in every aspect. And uh, it's it's a concept many people are not familiar with, but a town can actually go under, like a whole town. It's weird. And... But normally, or sorry, I should say historically, what happens in these times of strife and is that the arts are turned to as a means of of help. Yeah. People normally create and use art in difficult times, and I'm I've turned back to that mission statement and. It's pretty awesome because yeah. that's what I originally wanted to do, and now I'm. I, I the program is, uh, the infrastructure is set so that I can do that, and not have to worry about the the funding aspect, as I was before, and that just is really awesome. Yeah, congratulations. I mean, it's a huge, uh, you know, opportunity for you, and then you know, like you're saying for communities that are are struggling or failing, like to have that kind of connection and creativity um, and to help uh, hopefully kind of rebuild, you know, their systems and their, their life, I think is really commendable. And the fact that you had a dream to travel the world when you were a kid and you, you know, you we got to go to Australia and Italy and then all of this was taking shape around the same time. Like, uh, yeah, congratulations. Um, one, other question I had about this before we do move on to Los Angeles is uh, your website splatboombang.com uh, like that is the home for <laughs> percussive storytelling like what's the connection there like is that literally just sort of a brand name or is there it, another it, it is it's it's kind of a brand name it it, it came to me in form of like uh, onomatopoeia in the old Batman the original <laughs> Batman series you right. remember when he would hit someone it would be like kapow yeah right bam <laughs> right. and so <laughs> I I kind of thought that what I do is is kind of onomatopoetic there's yeah. a whole lot of connection between the language and the percussion so sure. I just came up with splat boom bang yeah and. No, I, I, I always corporate I always, branding. <laughs> no, I found it uh, interesting, and then was always curious what if there was another element to it, or it was yeah, literally kind of a branding thing. So I mean, it's smart. Um, which, by the way, I did try to watch the that original uh, Batman movie with my two girls uh, yep. several months ago. Yeah, they were they were not impressed. We did watch the Michael Keaton <laughs> Batman from the eighties. Oh, good. Uh, which that's did, that's they, a good one. Yep, they did enjoy that. So uh, they, I redeemed just, just myself. Just don't do the Ben. 
just no Ben Affleck or George Clooney. <laughs> no, just stay no. away from that. We'll stuff. leave the bat nipples at home, but um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's no. cold, okay? It's just it's cold. <laughs> right. uh, but Batman's human too. Um, yeah, so we tried to watch the uh, the original, like yeah. And it was like too corny. They just kind of looked at me like, what do you see in this? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> it was fun when I was a kid. I kind of liked it. But so, okay. So somehow you make your way then um, from Kansas, which seems to be your, your home base at that time, uh, to Los Angeles, which I think is like a whole nother, what I consider a ch- kind of chapter in your percussive career, I guess. Like how did that? Yeah, transpire? you could say that. Um, my my wife got a she's a biologist and she had received a postdoctoral uh, position in Los Angeles at a university. Okay. And so we came out here because we thought, well, it's Los Angeles. There might be something for me. <laughs> and within yeah, sure yeah, enough, within within about a couple of weeks, I I had had a couple of gigs and I, I mean. I'm not saying like the most amazing gigs. In fact, they were very strange gigs, but right. they were gigs. And the weather is kind of cool. If you don't know, the weather's pretty awesome. Right. And we just decided that it was it was pretty neat. She liked it. I liked it. And she ended up leaving academia for industry. Okay. Because science actually has an industry, right. unlike us. Well, that they pay they pay you for. Right. And so we, we kind of started to set up a little more of a home base out here. Oh, okay. Um, and, uh, I mean, how soon, I mean, you, st- you start taking gigs, like you said. I mean, how long did it take you to hook up with uh, the quartet, the Los Angeles Percussion Quartet, those guys? Yeah, not very long, and it was not uh, – so when I when I moved out here – one of the first things I did was just send a, a message to all of the percussion professors at various universities and uh, orchestral players simply saying hi right? And with a brief bio. Um, not begging for gigs, but just simply saying hi. And I went to see a percussion ensemble concert that one, that Nick Terry, who, a member of the quartet, was... Uh, presenting at Chapman University where he's a professor mm-hmm. and I met uh, Justin DeHart there he's another member of the quartet and this was just in passing like I was new to the city and then they I, they sent out a, a call or an invitation for auditions to, they sent this out everywhere um, but they contacted me for an immediate two gigs they had like in the following two weeks. So essentially oh. they needed a new, they needed a fourth, right? but they also needed someone really quick to come in. And so I became the really quick person and then they just didn't get rid of me. <laughs> somehow. Or you, or you wouldn't leave. I wouldn't leave. Yeah. I, basically I just, it, that served as my audition and it, you know, we, we, we clicked on a lot of levels that, yeah, personal and and professional which it's really cool when you like the people you work with you know
Yeah, as far as Black Swamp is concerned, like we have an awesome like team here. We're all friends. We all click, and it definitely makes um, working together easier. And then I can um, only imagine. I mean, who wants to play music with somebody that just gets on your nerves or rubs you the wrong, wrong way? It's obviously. true, but I mean, you'd, you'd be surprised. People, yeah. especially younger groups and younger players, don't put as much stock in the personal side yeah. of things yeah. but as you get older and you know at this point you have to keep in mind I, I have i have two small children nick has two small children matt has one mm-hmm. uh, we have kids we're old we're not a young 20 ensemble in our 20s ensemble and so right. we put a lot more stock into the personal relationship side of things um something i wish younger ensembles and younger players did more honestly right uh because that comes back around people develop reputations yeah and it's hard to shake these things and of course we're all egocentric in our early 20s and think that everything revolves around us like we're we're all guilty of that to some degree but i would love to see these young ensembles put more stock in in those interpersonal relationships because I've been kind of shocked at some of the things I've seen um, from different groups yeah interesting I mean it's definitely a big part of it I mean even as an individual like when you're saying you you roll into Los Angeles and what I thought was pretty cool is you you know one of the first things you did was kind of introduce yourself even by you know email or letter letting you know genuinely like um kind of making yourself known in the area and um you know who wants to kind of work with a jerk <laughs> like um and you yeah, can build a reputation it's so true it's it's so true and um i uh, it, it, the thing that i i found and and now i have a little bit more perspective in that i've been working in the industry out here and i've been doing a little more uh a little more film work, a lot of live performance work, right? Uh, like shows with with bands. I, I just finished playing with the Who yeah. and Oingo Boingo. Oh yeah, Oingo <laughs> Boingo. That's right. <laughs> and and we, I've I've been doing a lot more of that stuff. The video game uh, industry, right? And so as I get more involved in that, I I've seen and heard firsthand from the contractors and the people who do the hiring that they just prefer to hire people they like as people too because the players are are here yeah everybody's yep. a good player yeah i mean come on like we're all really good players but yeah. at the end of the day sometimes it just comes down to how you interact with each other oh yeah i totally believe it like i do see you know online you're playing with mb gordy a lot which oh yeah I MB. Think... i'm playing with him sunday yeah this just in a few days um which you know, I've, he's a Black Swamp artist. I've been able to meet him a couple times and and talk to him. Super cool guy. He's been awesome as far guy. as I can tell, like in that movie uh, scene, like movie music, uh, TV show, recording, live stuff, like you're talking about. Um, I do have to gush a little bit. I know he played on the like the uh, the latest Battlestar Galactica like soundtrack. I think Bear yeah. McCreary is that his name? The Bear, composer. Yeah. And I think that yep. does kind of come down to relationship too. Like he was able to establish a relationship and with a composer like that, and then be able to play on a lot of those, his soundtracks. And 
I just thought the show was awesome, and they and obviously the percussion and like the drumming on that was like super cool. So when I found out he was doing that, I was like, oh, you're awesome. <laughs> so, um, oh yeah, he's he's great. He's he's been he's helped me out so much out uh, here. Yeah, and that um, was gonna be kind of you know one of my questions is how. I mean, mostly it's a natural progression. Like you're saying, you pick up a couple gigs and you're playing, you know, you start with um, LAPQ. And uh, is that how you say it? Is that you guys refer to yourself as LAPQ? Okay, cool. Um, uh, And then you're kind of growing and building. Like, did it seem to, was there something that kind of led you to playing these higher kind of more profile gigs? Or is it literally everything we're laying out here? Like you're, your personality, working with people, working hard and, and, you know, being active and involved. Yes. Yes. And yes to everything. <laughs> no, I, the, the thing that helps me the most, um, so I, I didn't come out here in my early twenties. I came out here in my early thirties. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was a little older anyway, um, which helps. That's one thing that helps. Sure. Uh, joining LAPQ because they had already established themselves out here. So just by joining them, I was elevated to a different level in the percussion world out here. Yeah. And that helped me because I was new and people were like, who's this guy? Right. Yeah. And, and it kind of helped me jump a few of those ladder climbing steps, uh, so that I was immediately playing, with the quartet and doing some really cool high profile things with them and then meeting all of these people face to face and hanging with them. And then that certainly helps because you put, they, they attach a face to a name and then you're in the back of their brain if they ever need, uh, extra percussion or whatnot. The thing is though, like everybody knows you want a gig that like, you don't need to ask like everybody <laughs> wants to work out here. It, it's yeah. so funny when, when you get people who like are basically begging for gigs, like we all know we all want the gigs. Oh, yeah. like, that's sort of how it works. That's the industry. Yeah. Um, but it's also kind of cool to just hang with people, you know, we're, we're, <laughs> right. we're just percussionists. Right. So that's, that's what I was allowed to do because of being in the quartet. Yeah, I didn't have to uh, force a round peg in a square hole. Uh, I just got to let things progress a little more, a little more naturally, and sure. meet people. And as you meet people, then all of a sudden they'll call you for one thing, and if that goes well, then someone from that calls you for something else. And things have really picked up, and it's quite fun. The diversity of of play is what I absolutely love the most so in the morning i'll do a storytelling i might have a rehearsal in the afternoon for some new music project and then i might have a show at night yeah and that is to me personally is what is what i want it's what i want to do and you have two kids and a wife on top of it uh there yes i do (laughs) so i mean i know your kids are both in school now right because you were also yeah you know within all this part-time or full-time 
dad. I, I was a stay-at-home dad yeah. for nine years. And uh, made for some very early mornings and late nights, but yeah. yeah. And it's, I mean, it, I know it's, it's, I kind of chuckle at it, but like now that they're in school, like that does free up a lot of time for you. So does that mean you take on more or does that mean you just can breathe between projects? That's a great question. And I, I, my son just started kindergarten in uh, September, so I'm still figuring that out somewhat. But a lot of this coincides with what I, I mentioned earlier about going back to the root mission of percussive storytelling right. to get to underserved communities. So I think this extra time it, I'm using to try to uh, take all of the stuff I've done over the last 10 years, not just in storytelling, but elsewhere as well and sort of uh organize it you know um analyze and organize and see really where i want to put my efforts into developing things further because percussive storytelling can go in so many directions but where do i want it to go um and it's big enough and stable enough that it can go in those directions i just need to uh problem solve things and and you know make it make it happen and the same right. is true of the quartet where do we want to go artistically where do we want to put our time um and then the freelance world is more like if they call you do you, you go <laughs> <laughs> right there's no uh there's no d- deciding so basically this is kind of giving you, you know i more do time i really to... i yeah more more time to to think develop pursue troubleshoot um, Troubleshoot. Problem, oh, yeah. problem solve. Troubleshoot. <laughs> yeah. All the time. Uh, so what do you or where do you find kind of motivation or inspiration, whether inside the music industry or outside? Because obviously, you know, you got a lot going on. Like kind of what kind of keeps you moving forward? Um. If it's a question about, are you asking about like inspiration for creation of art? Um, yeah, yeah. Motivation and inspiration for what you do. So I have a really lame answer for that. It's not like a picturesque landscape or, (laughs) uh, a dolphin perfectly jumping out of the water. Uh, Honestly, it's, uh, it's just time. If I can have... Uh, longer than anything longer than two hours is considered like a dream scenario yeah and i i've i've been fortunate enough to do a lot of uh residencies like arts residencies and um you know where you go away for two weeks in a cabin somewhere and yeah uh, and create stuff and people are always asking me like, Oh, it was the nature that did it. I'm like, no, it was the uninterrupted time. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's what it was. Right. Um, just to be able to access those parts of your brain and just let things, let things flow and just let it keep flowing. Yeah. So for me, that's, that's a big, that's a big factor. Um, do you uh, meditate then? Do I meditate? 
I mean, is that what you kind of, is that what you're getting at? Like if you have a couple hours, you, you spend time just being still and being silent and letting your brain decompress a bit. Yeah, but it's sort of an active meditation because I, I do things like I write a lot. I, oh, okay. I write all the time. Sure. And I kind like of journaling? meditate. So I'll, I'll like what? Journaling or music? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not music, I, uh, stories. Right. Um, and so I just write text and even write about pieces I would compose or do it, but I don't write the, the music and, and I just, I just kind of let my brain go and then I come back later and analyze things or look through it. And most of it's complete garbage, (laughs) but you know, you, so, some really cool things happen from that, and yeah, uh, I no. mean, I have a few stories where I, I, because I do a lot of improvisation on tabletop percussion, and I came up with this like great thing, and I had this story, and I had the music, and they just didn't go together. So I went back into my pile of stories, and another story fit that music perfectly. It was crazy. Yeah, and I just like drag, click, and drop or something. <laughs> And I had a new story that was ready to go. And, but a lot of that stuff comes from just having the time to explore. Yeah. And so, that's why I go back to undergrad and graduate when I talk to younger students about them getting a little bit outside of the, the practice room to stop thinking so much about technique, to stop focusing so much on these technical etudes because if you get bogged down in that then you are missing the artistic side of things and then when you're outside and you're finally in the real world outside of a university setting um it's sink or swim and the people who swim are the ones who have thought uh outside the box and more creatively about their art in my opinion yeah no, I mean obviously you have to have a you have to have a technical base but to get I don't know, you have to experience life, you know, to be able to kind of infuse life into your yeah, your and, plane into your And art. I, I'm not afraid to say this, but I think that the percussion world and by percussion world I mean the university percussion teaching system has become very technique focused. Sure. So much so that it's actually altering the repertoire and to me that's a little alarming i I think technique is great but at at some point you have to let go of it and then go you know create the art sure and i feel that in percussion right now in western classical percussion i should say we are uh obsessed with technique Mm -hmm. and it's it's a halting the development not haunting halting like right. or not halting but like uh delaying or uh, i don't know right uh, it's my personal thought that I, I think we need to focus more on the art and less on the technique no i think it's a really good point i mean would you find though that that having i mean kind of developing that technique gives you sometimes more of a means to express your art like if there's something that I mean, I guess this is getting a little too specific that you wanted something you wanted to play or something you you wanted mm-hmm. to write, but you really c- 
couldn't because you couldn't actually play it or write it. Like yes, yeah, so, uh, okay. So that's a really good point. Um, I think what I what I mean is, you, we learn the technique, but then we're continually relearning it and yeah, learning sure. it. And the pieces people are playing on their master's recitals and even doctoral recitals are actually technical etudes. Yeah. They're not like serious rep pieces and so we're pushing further in that direction of technique rep instead of artistic rep um i firmly believe in the technique and i have solid technique and i was taught by a guy who has oh yeah impeccable sure. technique so i definitely understand the need for the technique and like you said it gives me the tools so when i get challenged with something and i have to problem solve it i i go into my technique handbook to figure it out yeah but um but i let go of technique years ago as far as developing it like mm -hmm. it's not the end all right it's the it's a tool to help you express yourself that's how i look at it oh yeah i um, totally agree um so what do you kind of what are you doing that might help benefit your costs i guess <laughs> you know what i'm saying like obviously you're writing pieces that uh are more of a musical expression or more of a you know piece of music and less uh, uh a technique showcase like are, you, are there yeah, other um, and then commissioning i i i'm uh, a firm believer in commissioning non-percussionists sure. for music yep that's kind of where i was what i was thinking is you almost have to reach out to non-percussionists um to help kind of develop this repertoire yep yeah and the way that i i, I talk about that and 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 even the quartet we we give classes or lectures and or if i give a a talk and and i'm not affiliated with the university which is really cool because i can just kind of say what i want i don't right. <laughs> piss off anybody it's great yeah. um but uh i guess when it, you go back to like john cage lou harrison these these early writers they would go for a sound concept Mm -hmm. and then have to go out and figure it out. Sure. Um, and the technique was developed around the composer's mind. And then what I think is happening now is composers see all of the only technique that we show them, and then they're composing to our technique, not to their minds. Yeah, not to their vision. And that's because when they go to our recitals or, or whatever, when they're in undergrad, grad, we're not playing rep pieces, we're playing technical pieces. And so then they think that that's how you're supposed to play the instruments. Right. And I want to go back to a time when the composer comes to me and says, I want something like this, and it doesn't exist. And you have to go, and you got to figure it out. Yeah. It's That's so much fun where like I have to hold weird mallet formations <laughs> and... Like there's no technique for it, but you have to figure it out, right. and that's 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 what it's all about. It's all about the sound. That's sure. what we do for a living: is we create sound. And so that's something that you talk to if you are doing a, a school visit or a residency. You talk to kids about. Um, Absolutely, yeah. and I, 
But I'm being a, I'm being a lot more PC on this conversation than I am. When <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, we don't want to alienate too many people here. Um, so no, that's what... true. I and, but but it's a debate I I, I want to have because I feel like these conversations are are they all come from a good place. Even people who are high on the technique side, they're developing things that are crazy awesome. Right. But I, I think that these debates can help push things forward because to me the end of the day, no matter what side you're on, we still want percussion to continue to develop as a Western classical instrument. And we need to keep pushing that development. And so that's the goal at the end of the day. Um, uh, what, what, if you could go back in time 25 years and talk to young Corey Hills, uh, Oh, maybe at Northwestern, uh, and maybe this is all kind of tied together with what we were just talking about. Like, what would you tell yourself? One or two things uh, that you kind of know now that you wish you would have known then. Um, don't don't take the blue pill, or is it the red pill? Don't <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, right. But, um. Go go to law school? I, I don't know. Is that, is that a... <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, play the flute. No, I I th- play the flute. Oh God, there you go. Um, a, something that I definitely would have talked about, and that th- and this is something that is offered a lot more today than it was when I was in college, was uh, uh music business skills. Sure. Or just business skills as far as uh, grant writing. Uh, just understanding and working through the professional side of things, professional development. Right. Um, now they have courses in like entrepreneurship and all this stuff that that didn't exist. We had to learn it basically day by day. You did a gig and then you would write down what worked and what didn't, you know, and you would go from there. So I would, I would definitely tell myself and other people of that age to think further down the road because the university system is a bit of a, uh, not a trap. It's just, it's a, it's an Eden. It's a paradise. And that's not what actual real life is. I mean, when you go to a school, you have every instrument there, you know, (laughs) everything's laid out for you. You have gigs, you have support, and you're not in charge of any of it. You just get to show up and do it. It's 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 paradise, um, but the real world does not work that way. And so I would talk to myself about some career kind of things. No, I and then I totally agree. I mean, I, when I was in school, undergrad and graduate school, all I wanted to do was play. Like, I I mean, unfortunately, some other like other subjects suffered because I was like. All I wanted to do, all I wanted to do was, you know, practice. And well, I couldn't say all I wanted to do was practice, but all I wanted to do was play music. And uh, and now, you know, what do I do? I'm in, involved in a percussion <laughs> manufacturing company, doing sales and marketing and artist relations. Like, so you know, going back in time, I would have definitely taken. Uh, I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Um, I would have definitely taken business classes, marketing classes, and it's never too late. But, um, you know, when you are in school and you have, have the opportunity, because I think you're, you're totally right. And you still have to, as a percussionist, you have to market yourself. You have to, 
be professional. You have to know um, kind of what you're doing outside of just playing the music. So, um, yeah, I think it's a great point. Yeah, developing a, a secondary skill is mm-hmm. is another way of sort of phrasing that, which sure. is um, uh, writing. I mean, that's that's something that, that a lot of people should be working on. But I have found, and, and I, I know I write creative stories, but I'm not talking about that kind of writing. Um, I have found that my ability as a writer has opened so many doors for me. Sure. Um, so do you just, see you see a possible like secondary career path in, I mean, you already have one children's story, uh sequel coming well, out. Like, is that another direction you want to go? The, you mean the more technical uh, or, side? Or just not necessarily playing less, but writing stories more, like writing children's books more. And become... um, yeah, that, that certainly does interest me. But, um, even separate from that is just your ability to write uh, letters of interest, a job application, things, oh, a biography, yeah. a curriculum vita. Sure, sure. Um, there, all that kind of writing, and then just general email etiquette, which <laughs> is un stinking believable today. Yeah. Um, I, things things like that, I, I feel are are over overlooked but other secondary skills could be uh music recording right oh yeah for sure Uh, understanding the audio side of things or the video side of things and i i just have seen that people percussionists other musicians too who have a secondary skill um just have a more successful freelance life or career life because yeah. well it seems obvious but well it's more versatile you have to develop those skills earlier on when you don't have to of course it's never too late but right. while you're an undergrad that's a great time man yep you have all the resources um, yeah you have full i mean if you wanted to get involved in audio recording i mean every school has incredible access to that and then you graduate and you have like your old macbook and like one sm57 <laughs> like great what do right. i do with this yeah so i i just feel that that stuff is is really important um i i would i want all these young percussionists and, and i would have wanted myself as well to look at things a little more on a macro scale mm-hmm. instead of uh I'm just going for the gig. Right. So what do you do outside of uh, playing music and writing music? Any other? Uh, I, I build Legos. I do, do a lot of Legos. Do you? Like uh, with, your, with your kids or with? Just with my like, kids. Yeah. I, I do a lot of Legos and a lot of uh, pretend play. Yeah. Where I have to dress up in, well, whatever they make me dress up. Oh, as. okay. So you do that with your kids too. It's not pretend play. It's you, not just you. Don't when, worry. When you have your two hours of free time, uh, you, it's, yeah. you play. You play pretend. Uh, yeah, the Legos are are sweet. I got two girls, and we don't do a ton, but you know, 
Christmas or birthday, sometimes they'll get a set and then I bought myself some, we don't go crazy, but, uh, we enjoy it. Do you like kind of build and tear apart and rebuild things or you stick to the instructions and then it, and it sits in your, I am uh, not an instruction person. I don't know if you could even tell that from (laughs) this conversation, but there may have been some hints that I definitely don't follow the, uh, the instruction (laughs) manual. Um, so you just that have a sea of true. you have a sea of Legos and you just kind of start to build and create them. It looks a heck of a lot like my percussion studio, actually. <laughs> it's more or less the more or less the same thing, just <laughs> larger objects. Um, no, that's that's I I hey, with my kids and then and then I write. I I just love writing and yeah. sometimes the writing is related to my work and other times it's it's not. I just like to write. Cool. Well, I appreciate again the phone call. Like getting your story uh, was a lot of fun. I mean, um, like most of the people I've been talking to, I know kind of, I know who you are. I know you, you know what you do. Um, some more elementary things, right. but so to be able to kind of dig into, to you know what what you're doing, what you've been doing for the last years. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. So I appreciate your time. And, uh, I look forward to you to seeing you next week at PASIC, uh, for those listening at home. I'm not sure when it is, when this will get released, but we got PASIC, uh, next week in Indianapolis. So we'll run into each other there. I think (laughs) I hope so. So I'm going to, I'm going to enter a four mallet, uh, chop competition. <laughs> the, you think... the, the, <laughs> I think it might be too late. You might have to, uh, uh, you know, register for 2020. But or you could just walk uh, on. You could just make an appearance. But I, I feel like I I, I want to go. They have this uh, what is it? The the night time marimba hang thing. Have you heard about this? No, no, I don't know. Usually, it's like at the bar in the West End. There's a marimba, and then people play some things, oh, and then you can just right. go up and play. Yeah. So I was thinking that I would go up there, um, and essentially just improvise a solo in the style of all of the famous four mallet people, <laughs> and. Yeah, just sort of piece it all together into yeah. some meta piece um, and see if anyone gets the joke. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure they would, but uh, I mean, how many how many styles would there be? I mean, I guess you have to kind of you got to go in with see with some sort of some sort of outline, right? Uh, let's just say I may have been thinking about this for years already. This is, this is not a new, new thing. I've, it w- I've it wouldn't about. be an improvisation. It's actually, uh, yeah, but by, by this point it's a set composition. <laughs> All right, man. Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate it, Corey. And, hey, thank you. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. All 